sleeping Cutting the world from home for the weekend My bags are packed and running down four streets Tangled up in blue, set on repeat I'm ready now, I'm so ready Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of 430 by Angela Perley. She's our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about her, where to see her perform, and let you hear the rest of that song. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for another mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Well, Paula, what kind of mystery do we have today? In some ways, the worst kind, Steve. You know, I have no doubt that losing a loved one to murder, and an unsolved murder in particular when no one is called to account for it, must be one of the worst experiences in the human condition. But there is a really unique, brutal quality to having a loved one go missing, that torturous existence between having hope that they'll walk through the door any day, to that painful acceptance that you will probably never know what happened. You know, we've done quite a few disappearances on Ohio Mysteries, and here's another one that captured the attention of a nation. The 1946 case of Lola Celli, a pretty dark-haired schoolteacher who left the front stoop of her parents' home in broad daylight to walk to a bus stop a few blocks away and vanished without a trace before she got there. Lola would be 97 years old today if she were still alive. Oh, okay. Yeah, and in Grandview Heights, where she disappeared, this case is not closed. So where's Grandview Heights exactly? That's a little bit northwest of Columbus. It's a Columbus suburb. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, travel back with me in time. We're going to go back 73 years to when Lola was 24 years old, a black-haired, brown-eyed woman with a sweet smile. It was the year after World War II ended. Lola was born in a village in southern Italy to Michael and Ida Celli. She had a brother, Felice, and a sister, Elda. The family immigrated to the United States when Lola was nine years old. She did well in America and graduated from Ohio State University, where she was an honors student. She could speak five languages, and she was active in the Spanish Club, the French Club, and the Education Council. In the fall of 1945, Lola got her first teaching job, Home Economics at West Mansfield High School in West Mansfield, Ohio. By the way, West Mansfield is nowhere near Mansfield. They're a, a good hour and a half apart. Oh, I was going to ask that. Okay. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about West Mansfield being a village in Logan County, so that's just northwest of Columbus. Now, Lola's real goal was to become a language interpreter, possibly for the government, and a job that would take her on overseas adventures. 
but her parents convinced her to try teaching for one year. So Lola said okay, and she jumped into her job with both feet. In just her first few months on the job, I found her mentioned twice in her local newspaper, once as having given a talk to the PTA on the subject of home and school, and again when the West Mansfield School District talked about being fortunate to hire her, and that they were looking forward to her students offering a style show after they finished the new garments they were working on in sewing class. But Lola would never get to finish her first year of teaching. February 23rd was a Saturday, part of a long weekend because the schools would be closed Monday for President's Day, and Lola went to visit her parents about an hour away in Grandview Heights. She took the bus. Lola was playful with her siblings. When she got home, she hid her suitcase so she could surprise brother with her visit when he arrived later that afternoon, but Felice came in the house and saw a corner of the suitcase that gave away that his sister was home, and he called her out, and she revealed herself, giving him a big hug. The family spent the evening talking, laughing, and catching up. Lola told them all about her new job and her roommate. She sat at the piano and played some of her father's favorite Italian songs. She sounded pretty talented. Multi-talented, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, so Lola, she's so close to Columbus, she decided she's going to take advantage of being close to the big city. So the next morning, that Saturday morning, she makes plans to go to downtown. She wants to go to a department store to open a charge account. Because in these years after World War II, nylon hoses were still being rationed. And she needed to get an account opened and get her name on a hosiery list. Hmm. So at 10.30 a.m. on a bright, sunny morning, she threw a cheery goodbye over her shoulder at her mother, who was mopping the kitchen floor, and promised to be home in time for dinner. And then she stepped outside the small white frame house of her family home on West 3rd Avenue. She was wearing a gray Indian lamb fur coat, a gray hat, an aqua-colored dress with red trim, and red suede slip-on shoes. She had $60 in her purse. So she was uh, dressed to the nine, hit the town. Well, actually, it sounds like it, but I did read an account where she, her mother said, shouldn't you be dressing better than that to oh, go out? Okay. And she said, well, my coat's going to cover all of this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, okay. I've got the weekend off, so I'm dressing down. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lola, she was headed to a bus stop on Cambridge Boulevard. It was just a few blocks away. Harry Lane, a neighbor, saw her as she walked by his house. He was headed to the bus stop himself because he had his own errands in Columbus. So as Harry walked down the street, he could see Lola a couple blocks ahead of him. He expected to say hi to her when they arrived at the bus station. But when he got to the bus stop, she wasn't there. The bus driver hadn't seen her either. Well, back home, Mrs. Shelley thought her daughter might be home in time for a late lunch. She wasn't. So her mom thought, well, maybe she'd run into a friend and lingered longer than expected. And then another couple of hours went by. When she wasn't home then, she thought, well, maybe her daughter had gone to a movie or decided to spend the entire $60 she carried with her, which would have been odd because her daughter was very frugal. But what the heck? She's a young girl with a new job and a paycheck. At least that's what Mrs. Chelly told herself. By 5 o'clock, when Lola wasn't back home for dinner, Mrs. Jelly knew something was wrong. She was in tears when her husband arrived at 5.30. 
trying to comfort her, saying there had to be some kind of explanation. But by 9 o'clock... Oh, man, 9 o'clock? 9 o'clock, they stopped making excuses. They called police. Police wasted no time taking her disappearance seriously. They notified all the police departments in the area to be on the lookout for her. They started doing interviews with everybody in the neighborhood. Lola's picture was put on the news wires. Her image ran in newspapers all over the country. The case taxed the tiny Grandview Police Department to the max. The town had just four police officers. Yeah, they were working day and night. Even village officials were pitching in. City Auditor W.J. Grubbs, for instance, took charge of answering the, the police department phones so officers could be out on the streets helping with the investigation. A posse of high school boys even joined the hunt. The week after Miss Chelly went missing, 175 seniors from Grandview and Upper Arlington were dismissed from classes at noon on a school day to help comb the stone quarries, the Scioto Riverbank, and open fields. All they turned up were a pair of women's handkerchiefs with no way of knowing if they even belonged to Lola. Pauline Leibarger, a fellow teacher of Lola's at West Mansfield, told police the only man Lola ever mentioned to her was a young Dr. Melfi in Columbus. Detectives followed up. Anthony Melfi was 24 years old and a close childhood friend who had suffered a severe attack of influenza that December. When Lola came home for that President's Day weekend, she learned he had been taken back to a Columbus hospital because of complications from his long illness. Melfi died within 24 hours of Lola's disappearance. Wow. Yeah. And he died from the complications of influenza? Yeah, he, he was hospitalized at the time. Oh, okay. Police now were prepared to offer up a very popular theory when someone disappeared in the 1950s and 60s. Steve, let's say it together. Amnesia. Amnesia. <laughs> That, uh, you know, somehow that uh, after she stepped off her parents' porch, she somehow suddenly forgot who she was or where she came from. Anyway, police interviewed staff and students at West Mansfield High School. Uh, They came away from the impression that Lola was nervous and worried about her teaching duties. And so maybe the stress had brought on this, this case of forgetfulness. This, of course, didn't sit well with her family. Lola's brother, Felice, said hogwash. He was a research chemical engineer at OSU. He said his sister was in excellent physical and mental health. She didn't drink alcohol or smoke. She wasn't even dating anyone at the time she disappeared. She had a solid, stable life. And what a lot of people took for nervousness was just her high energy. Police are going to drop that amnesia idea soon because they find a couple of people who had an interesting story to tell. A man named Cecil Scott told police that on the day Lola vanished, he saw a man and a woman arguing in a car along Olentangy River Road. He was following the car, and at one point, the woman kicked her feet and a red shoe fell from the vehicle. He described the car as a red Dodge Coupe with a broken window. He said he stopped to look for the shoe but couldn't find it. Police came up empty-handed after they searched the area. But media reports of that account brought out other witnesses who seemed to have seen the same thing. There was a woman who reported a similar sighting, and another man, an Air Force captain, who said he also saw a Reg Dodge Coupe on Allentangy River Road. 
and that he saw the man and woman tussling inside. He said at one point, it appeared the driver had struck the girl with such force that she fell to the side and her foot shot through the open window, displaying a red shoe. The car turned east on Morse Road and disappeared. The captain didn't follow, he said, but he did write down the license number of that car on the back of a book of matches. Hmm. Great. Let's see the back of the book of matches. He couldn't find it. Oh, no. He couldn't find it. He said he did remember some of the numbers. So police went to work. They spent weeks trying to find licenses that had those numbers in some fashion. And they couldn't find one that belonged to a red Dodge Coupe. Then there was another witness, a filling station attendant on North High Street, which is just a mile from Olentangy River Road. The attendant said that on the same day, a man driving a red coupe with a broken window had stopped for gas. The attendant said a woman was with him, and he heard him to tell the woman to be quiet. He also seemed to be in a big hurry. He bought $2 worth of gas, handed the attendant a $5 bill, and then drove off without waiting for his change. That's expensive back then. Yeah, and, you know, why would you drive off without your change unless you have reason? But police still didn't have anything tangible to follow. Two Italian-American organizations offered rewards for information, and calls started coming in. On one tip, authorities even dragged Twin Lakes in Delaware County. A couple of weeks after Lola disappeared, two people in Ironton, Ohio, said they saw a woman matching her description on February 27. A Mrs. Marshall Ankrum of North Canova said she saw her at the Ironton city limits. And a Carl Hughes, a foreman at the Ironton Stove Repair Company, said he saw her in a restaurant in the company of a man about 35 years of age. A month later, in April, Police looked into reports they collected from West Mansfield and Bellefontaine that the girl had been committed to a convent by her straight-laced Italian parents. Police Chief Livingston looked into it and reported publicly that beyond a doubt, she had not been compelled by her parents to enter a nunnery. In July, Fred Eigel, the caretaker of the Mount Calvary Cemetery in Columbus, called authorities to say a woman had telephoned him to declare that Lola was buried near a fence at the cemetery. When she called back with more details, police were ready and traced the call. They found the woman and learned she was a former mental patient. And when the cemetery story came out, a man who worked in Circleville called the Ohio State Journal to say, ignore all those stories. Lola is alive. I know, he told a reporter, because she is living with me. We are living in a small town near Columbus, and she is expecting a baby. There's always people like this when a story comes out. They have, they like insert themselves into this story. A lot. I can't even imagine the agony the families have to deal with, with all this back and forth. Anyway, he said that he called the family two or three times to let them know. But the family said uh, they were getting calls every day with tips. They didn't recall anybody calling to say that he was married to their daughter. And the idea of her being pregnant and running away, well, all of that seemed very out of character for her. Three weeks after that incident, Pickaway County Sheriff Charles Radcliffe got a tip about a pregnant bride that might be Lola. So the sheriff collected Lola's brother Felice 
and took him to the pregnant bride's house to have a look. The sheriff said for a few seconds that he might have found his lost sister. That's how much she looked like Lola. Oh, oh, interesting. But it wasn't her. By November of that year, Lola's disappearance had taken a toll on the family. Lola's siblings, Elda and Felice, they talked their mother into taking a job. They helped Ida Celli find work with a garment maker, hoping it would stop her from sitting at home all day weeping. I found it interesting that two years after Lola was gone, the police and the family had actually changed positions. Reporters were now quoting police as saying they believed she had likely met with foul play, and the family had adopted and was hanging on to the idea of amnesia. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no. Lola living under a new identity. No doubt it had to be easier to just want right. that to be the case. And then in May of 1949, everyone held a collective breath. During excavation, a ditch digger working in a field near Olentangy River Road near Grandview had turned up a body. Surely this was it. The field had been a dumping ground for North Columbus, and the area was filled in a short time after Lola disappeared. The bones were taken to a university hospital for examination, but the suspense was short-lived. Very quickly, coroner Robert Evans said even though he couldn't determine the gender of the bones, they belonged to someone who was at least 50 years old and had been in the ground for at least 20 years. Now, in 1955, nine years after the disappearance, another moment of hope, Sheriff Harold Bidwell of Madison County received word that someone had illegally dug a grave and buried a body in a coffin at the church cemetery in Canaan Township, southeast of Plain City. At the request of prosecutor Forrest Siderer Jr., the area was dug up and they found a wood coffin. Alas, the body turned out to be a man, not a woman. Again, another mystery added to the list of things they needed to be solved. By the way, they did solve this one. They eventually traced the body in that illegal wood coffin to a 19-year-old young man from Columbus by the name of Paul Post, who had died from gas fumes 11 years earlier. And that's why that's not an Ohio mystery. That is not. Well, there is a mystery here. I could not find out who had secretly buried him in the cemetery. So there you go. Uh, Also in 1955, Michael Celli died. The fate of his daughter still unknown. Now, one year later, in 1956, a stunning announcement. One decade after Lola vanished, the Grandview Heights chief of police... Livingston, said he was closing the Chelly case. He said the marshal of the neighboring town of Marble Cliff, John Guy, he had been one of the original investigators in Lola's case. Now he told the chief he had credible information that Lola was alive and that her disappearance was not a criminal matter. According to Chief Livingston, Guy refused to reveal her whereabouts because he was sworn to secrecy. And Livingston told reporters that was good enough for him. I've known John Guy for 50 years and I'm willing to accept his word, Livingston told the press. He said he had no reason to press Guy for details since there was no evidence of a crime. 
Well, this came as a complete surprise to the Chelly family. They said the Grandview Heights police chief hadn't talked to them since August of 1946. That was six months after Lola's disappearance. Lola's brother, Felice, said authorities had a moral obligation to tell the family so they could see for themselves. But the mayor of Grandview, A.K. Pierce, backed up his police chief and said the case was officially closed. Now, during this time, the marshal in question, John Guy, he couldn't be reached because he was away on vacation. But vacations don't last forever. And when he came back, the press was waiting. And that's when Marshal John Guy said that he'd heard things from time to time, but reports of his statement were greatly exaggerated. To my knowledge, he said, I have never seen Lola Celli either before or after she disappeared. Well, we've got an armchair detective lined up for this one, so let's see what she has to say. Well, tonight we're welcoming Gina Mace of Akron. Hi, Gina. Hi, Paula. (laughs) Gina has been a freelance journalist for most of her life, writing for several publications, including investigative pieces. Uh, She's done some public relations, and you even had a career early on in the court system, didn't you? Yes, I was a bailiff. Yeah, so that's a pretty impressive background. And, uh, you know, another reason this case is perfect is because you're Italian. Yes, I am. All right. Maybe a little insight there. Did you have fun looking into this case? I had a great time looking into it. Is it what did you what was your overall thoughts? I think that police department was overwhelmed and probably if there'd been a better investigation, they may have been able to find out something. It sound it sounded like they had some clues there. Yeah. And the one thing that I just kept wanting to pull my hair over was that guy saying I wrote the license number on a book of matches and then promptly lost it. Ah, what do you think of that? I think that makes them pretty suspicious. Yeah, tell I me really about do. that. Because, first of all, he was a captain in the Air Force. Right. I, you would think he would be more organized and disciplined than that. I mean, if he wrote it down, why didn't he call the police then? Why did he wait? Um, the her disappearance was in the paper, you know, the next day. So, or maybe that evening. We all we know it would have been the next day because they didn't call till nine o'clock. Right. So, what stopped him from letting them know earlier? It sounds like he just he wanted to insert himself in the story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That could be. I think I think the person who killed her was in that car. I think she was in that car. I think it was somebody she knew. Oh. Um I think that she was on her way to the bus stop and somebody she knew came and said, "Hey, I'm going to Columbus." Offered her a lift. And offered her a lift. I could see that. I mean, it's got to be really hard in broad daylight to be driving a car, park the car, get out, yank a woman inside, manage to keep her inside while you're getting back into the car. Right. It's so much easier if it's somebody you know and you just say, hey, I'll give you a lift. Right. And you know what? Maybe they hadn't gotten that far when she realized, wait a minute, he's not taking me where I want to go, started fighting in the car, which right. is what a couple of witnesses saw. Mm-hmm. And then when they got to that um, gas station... 
and the attendant, you know, who knows, maybe he had a gun or in some way was threatening her to where he could just say, be quiet, and she was not offering up, hey, I'm, I'm being kidnapped. Right. You know, she was sitting there and behaving until they pulled away. Right, and what people have to remember is, because it hit me when I read that he told her to be quiet, I wondered why didn't she just get out of the car when he, when he was getting gas. But in those years, there was somebody from that worked at the gas station that would pump your gas. Right. So he was sitting next to her the whole time. Right. And probably threatening her, or at least she felt threatened. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because especially for younger people, they may not realize back then you did not get out of the car. Somebody pumped your gas for you. So if he had a weapon aimed at her, you know, he probably could have very much kept her in control during that short exchange. Right. And her, her brother says in in an interview with the author of the, uh, there was a story in one of the detective magazines. Her brother said that she was not the type of person who would ever get into the car with a stranger. So he didn't think that that was her in the car, but... I don't think it was a stranger. Yeah. I think it was somebody she knew. That would explain it. After she went missing, there were so many tips that came in, and some of these I just couldn't believe. I mean, they're digging in cemeteries for illegally buried coffins and visiting homes of pregnant brides. And Do you think that she lived for a while after that? I mean, I know they often say... People who are kidnapped are going to be dead when, in mm-hmm. a very short time. But some of these scenarios played out for months, maybe even some years. Do you think she might have lived, if she had been kidnapped, that she had lived with her kidnapper for quite a while after? Well, we all know that, that there are people who do that, who keep them. I mean, look at Cleveland, three women in a house for 10 years. Right. So he, he could have tried to to keep her as long as he could as some kind of sex slave or something. I think, unfortunately, we don't know his background, so we don't know if he had a wife and kids at home or if he had a bunker underneath the house. You know, we don't know that kind of stuff. It's possible, but I don't think if she did that she would have been out in public where people would be able to see her and recognize her. There was a... Somebody said they saw her working in a a garment factory in Chicago. And uh, the police went up there from from Grandview to interview or to see the girl and interview her. And she didn't say a word. And the, the person who sat next to her said, if you want to talk to her, you have to go through me. She only speaks Greek. Oh. So he, so the officer left. He didn't test it. Right. <laughs> you know, he didn't do anything to find out if that was true. Right. To ask other people or anything. He just said, okay. And, but she looked like this person. And we know that she speaks five languages. Right. So that'll always be, you know, a mystery. But I don't, I, I don't think that she... I don't. I don't think it was her. It just would have been nice to if have the more confirmation. Had, 
yeah, done their job. Yeah. You know. So we get to ni- 1956, so that is 10 years after she's gone. And the police chief says, you know what? My buddy who lives uh, next door to to this city says uh, she's alive. He can't tell us where she's at because he promised not to, but we're closing the case. Don't worry, she's fine. Wow, that was weird. I wonder how many beers <laughs> it took him to bring that out. <laughs> you know, yeah, maybe that was a, over a, a <laughs> long night of some heavy drinking. That was crazy. And then, you know, this police chief... You know, watching this family agonize for 10 years and then just coming out and saying, sorry, family, we can't give you any information. Just trust us. She's fine. What? That's crazy. That is crazy. And then everybody waiting on pins and needles for the neighboring marshal in the other county, in the other city to come back. It's like, what's he going to say? And then he comes back and he's like, uh, I think some people have exaggerated what I yeah, said. As I knew. Soon as, yeah, as soon as he's confronted. He, he pulls back on that story. I did find, um, not too long ago, I can't remember the year, where Grandview Heights said, as far as they're concerned, this is still an open case. So clearly whatever Chief Livingston attempted to do back then didn't stick because uh, the city definitely considers this unsolved and an open case. Well, one reason that police departments leave cases open and unsolved if it's not solved and if it's an open case, we can't get the records to see what the investigation was, to actually look at the records. Once it's closed, it's, it's a public record. You are so right. And I'll tell you, I, from everything that I read, it sounded like this poor, really overworked police department was trying really hard. I mean, there were numerous stories, and they were chasing down a lot. I don't think they had anything to be, you know, overly embarrassed about, like, not taking it serious. Right. The very first day she was missing, they were, they were like, full force Amber Alert oh, all was- over it. And back then, a lot of times, they said, you know what, it's an adult, we have to wait 24 hours, call us later. And they didn't. So it would be a shame if that were the case, if they were like keeping it open only because they didn't want anybody to see their investigation. Um, but I I thought at least it sounded hopeful, like they were acknowledging that their police chief had a, a brief moment of insanity back in 1956 and that she was not a runaway who went off to live her own life and leave her family behind that day, which would have been cruel. Right, exactly. And I and I don't think that I don't I don't think that they did a bad job because that's what they wanted to do. I don't think they were prepared. I don't think they had the training. It was a small police department. They probably didn't have a lot of crime like that in that area that they ever had to and And it's hard to investigate those kinds of cases when you don't have the experience or the training. One point, citizens went to their city council and asked if the city would hire a private investigator. 
and the mayor said no, that they, he had confidence in his police chief. Uh, so he wouldn't do that. So, yeah, you know, that's unfortunate. It, it's one of those cases where you think they're, it's a matter of pride that is stopping them from doing all they can. Well, Gina, thanks so much for being with us tonight. We appreciate your insights on this. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time. Thank you. That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news clippings, and more. On this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Angela Purley is from Columbus, Ohio, and she's been writing tragic love songs rooted in folk, cosmic country, and indie rock for over a decade now. Much of that time, she was with a group called the Howlin' Moons. I know you like uh, band names. You like that one? I love Howlin' Moons. That's a good one. Howlin' Moons. Now, just this month, she's released her first solo album, 430 co-produced with her longtime guitarist and collaborator, Chris Connor, and they are promoting the new album all over the place. If you're in Columbus, you can catch her at Scully's Music Diner on September 6th. If you're in Nashville, Tennessee, you'll find her performing at Tennessee Brew Works on September 13th. And if you're in Cleveland, be patient. She'll be at the Beachland Tavern on October 4. I could go on and on. She's did the River Rat Beer and Music Festival in Gallipolis on October 5. Did I say that right? Is it Gallipolis? Um, sounds great to me. Gina, is that Gallipolis? All right, we're we're uh, we're we're confirming that uh, the Southgate uh, House Revival. That's a big uh, venue in Newport, Kentucky, on October 11. The Union in Athens, Ohio, on October 12. Well, you get the idea. I hope she's got a touring bus to sleep on. This is one hard-working musician. Uh, making me feel lazy. I know. Actually, you know, if you want to keep up with what she's doing, best to follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out her website, Angela Pearly. Pearly, that's P-E-R-L-E-Y. AngelaPearly.com. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of her new song, 430. Here's the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. It's 4.30 and I'm not sleeping Cutting a while from home for the weekend You're like a stranger, you rip right through me I'm blown, I can't as you're shouting in your teeth I'm ready now, I'm so ready I'm ready now, I'm so ready Stop me I'm ready now I'm so ready
Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.